go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis and chapter 33. Genesis 33. What a, what a great reminder we just had just now, just through, through song of worshiping a holy God. Uh, so often, even if we can fall into the traps of just some of the rhythms and routines of gathering together on Sunday morning, uh, that we sometimes fail to grasp the reality of who it is that we're worshiping, that we're, what, what we're doing when we gather together. And just that great reminder, it is a holy, majestic God that we worship and serve. And we have the privilege this morning of going into his word where he speaks to us. Uh, what a great thing that is uh, for us to be reminded of this morning. Again, we'll be in Genesis 33. Again, we'll be kind of doing a little one-off from the series that, uh, that Keith has been leading us through these last number of, the, of weeks with the, the called out series and in particular concerning the kingdom. Um, but we'll be paying attention here in, in Genesis 33 where actually we have a passage which has uh, some of the most remarkable, dramatic scenes uh, of, of reconciliation, of enemies, uh, being reunited, uh, reconciled to one another. And it's a great joy to be able to spend time in this passage with you this morning. So I'd invite you to please stand as uh, we read our text. Again, from Genesis 33, we'll read the entire chapter together. It says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, and Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children threw drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and say, So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. 
And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he brought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of lamb on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Lord, I pray that as we uh, sit under the teaching of your word, that your Holy Spirit would be going before us, giving us clarity. And God, I pray that you would be glorified and lifted up above all else in our time this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So I am personally the youngest child in my family. I have just an older sister who's just two years older than me. And I never really spent time uh, growing up with younger children than me, really hardly at all. I didn't spend time around babies, sometimes in larger families. Uh, just you'll, you'll spend more time with, with younger children. Uh, and so I didn't spend any time with them, and so I didn't really like young kids that much. I didn't, I didn't dislike them. I just didn't have a, an affinity for them. I didn't find babies particularly cute. I didn't see what all the hubbub was really all about. I mean, they weren't necessarily ugly, but, you know, they weren't particularly cute either. All that was kind of my, my, my growing up, as a, as a, even as a, as a child and given, getting older and even into adulthood. That was still kind of my, uh, my thing. I didn't see what all the big hubbub was about, about children, didn't find them particularly cute. But then something changed. I had one. When Cora was born, how I saw children changed dramatically. It was amazing how not only did it change how I saw Cora, my oldest, and being just this beautiful child, but it even affected how I saw other children as well. I saw the cuteness that so many other people see in children, just even with, with whether it be you know, clothes and their toys and, and just seeing them interact and they're laughing or giggling or, or whatever it is, it dramatically changed how I see young children and so many other aspects actually of life as well. And in fact, that dynamic of having this encounter and then this shift that takes place in how you see things, that's actually exactly what we see in this passage here in Genesis 33. How there can be an introduction, an encounter, which not only affects how you see one relationship, but all relationships. Genesis 32, just a previous chapter to what we just read, describes Jacob's encounter with the Lord. The wrestling with the angel. And this encounter dramatically affects how Jacob sees himself, as you can see, how he sees Esau, and how he sees the Lord as well. Ultimately, what we're going to spend our time unpacking this morning is that because the Lord creates in us new life, let us pursue godliness in our dealings with the Lord and with others. And we'll see this in in three primary ways, in Jacob's humility, reconciliation, and in worship. I remember Jacob, he's someone that we're introduced to in Genesis 25. So much has been said about the life of Jacob already up to this point in the narrative. 
He's the second-born son of Isaac and Rebekah. He is the twin of Esau. He is a deceiver, stealing the birthright and the blessing of his older brother Esau. But Jacob yet is the child of promise. I said that the younger, that the older would serve the younger. He is the husband of Rachel and Leah and all that goes with that. And we come to Genesis 32 where Jacob is preparing to meet Esau. And he is strongly influenced in how he's going to orchestrate this meeting his brother who hates him in his mind. He is is preparing out of a position of fear. And we'll unpack that a little bit more so later. But as you can imagine, he is terrified of this encounter. But chapter 32 describes Jacob's engagement, if you will, with the Lord. Jacob wrestling with the Lord, who is in the form of a man, angel, this weird thing that's going on that is a a manifestation of God. And chapter 33 tells us that something changed within Jacob slash Israel, as his name is changed. So we are forced to look back and to see, well, why this new man? How could this come about in chapter 33, this encounter that Jacob has with Esau? But look at all that is new in the life of Jacob. Just look back there in chapter 32, what the encounter with God changes in Jacob. All this in chapter 32. In verse 25, he's given a new consciousness and awareness of his weakness. It says there that then he said, let me go if the day has, verse 26, verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Jacob previously had only succeeded in all of his dealings. He schemed his brother. He schemed his father. He schemed his father-in-law by securing a large herd for himself before he left Laban's property. Jacob needed to be brought low, and the pain he felt in his hip reminded him of the weakness that he had before the strength of God. Verse 26, he had a new consuming hunger for God. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Unwilling to let the man angel go until Jacob received a blessing from God, knowing he needed what only God could give. Verse 28, Jacob is given a new name, a new identity. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Name changed from deceiver, Jacob, to striven or wrestles with God. Verse 29, he receives a new blessing. Finally getting that blessing from, it says, and there he blessed him. Verse 30, Jacob has this new testimony. It says that I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. And he lastly says that he has a new limp as well. Not like the limp that I tried to have when I was in middle school trying to look cool, but a new kind of limp because his hip was dislocated, a real limp. But equipped with this new name, new blessing, 
new testimony, a new limp, Jacob prepares to then face the one who had sworn to kill him. God had to first deal with Jacob before Jacob could deal with Esau. All of that, that encounter with the angel, took place the night before he is ready to meet Esau. He had all these plans. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to meet him, all fed by fear. Again, we'll look into that. He has this encounter with God, and there is this change. Some of you may be familiar with Paul Washer. Paul Washer has a uh, pretty well-known analogy that is very appropriate here. He talks about uh, a hypothetical where he enters into a church where he's supposed to be a guest preacher. And he goes there on Sunday morning, and he is 45 minutes late after the, the start of the service. He goes in there, and an elder approaches him and says, Paul, what are you doing? Why are you so late? What happened? He says, I'm sorry, I was on my way here this morning, and I had a flat tire in my car. And so when I, I got out to fix my flat tire, and I was right along the interstate when I was changing the tire, and I had a lug nut, and it, it slipped right out of my hand. And so it, and it rolled right into the interstate, and so I went over to go pick it up, and I turned, and wouldn't you know it, there's a log truck barreling 70 miles an hour down the road, and it just plowed right into me, and so that's why I'm late. What do you mean it plowed right into you? Well, that, that's what happened. That, that's why I'm late. So you're a liar. That couldn't have, have possibly happened. You're, you're coming here. Your shirt is tucked in. There's not a bruise on you. Your hair is, is just the way that it's supposed to be. You must be a liar. He said, why are you calling me a liar? He said, you cannot have an encounter with a log truck and not come away changed. He said, why would we ever think we can have an encounter with the living God and not come away dramatically changed. That's precisely what we see here in Jacob. He's changed. The first thing that we notice is that he has this new life of humility, a new humility that he didn't previously have. We're now back in chapter 33. Notice first that it takes the form of, of being vulnerable before Esau, a vulnerability before him. Notice there in verse 3, where it says there that he went on before them, it says. Before Jacob's encounter, in chapter 32, Jacob actually wanted to be at the very end of the party. In chapter 32, verse 16, it talks about that. Jacob was at, wanted to be at the very back. He had this, this big uh, present, if you will, for Esau of all these, these herds and livestock that he was going to give to him. But then he was going to bring the rest of his caravan on before him. He was then going to bring his servants before him. He was going to bring his children all before him. He was going to bring his wives before him as well. But notice what it says there in 33, verse 3, that Jacob, he went on before them. He wants to go ahead. And in fact, even the original language, there's actually some added emphasis. Literally, it says that he himself went on before them. Striking that Jacob, of all people, bring our attention to that he is going on before this group that, he's, that he has with him. Even his vulnerability, his limp as well, is making him unable to run. Him going before Esau. Nowhere to run. Nowhere to hide. 
Jacob has always been one to ultimately protect himself. He flees to Laban when faced with the danger of Esau's wrath after he found out that Jacob had stolen his birthright and blessing. Jacob obtains his own security at the expense of his father-in-law, Laban, before he fleed from him in accruing himself, securing for himself a large portion of Laban's flock. He avoided vulnerability and protected his own interests whenever he could. But he is going before. He's saying, let me face the consequences of my previous actions. Jacob is not hiding any longer. His encounter with the Lord has compelled him to pursue openness and vulnerability before this brother that he knows that he has wronged. It's not just in vulnerability, but in this this bowing before him as well. So that he was bowing himself to the ground seven times. Is this just some some sign of deference in the ancient Near East? Just, Just what you do? He's just showing that he comes in peace. Actually, a lot more than that. Remember that Jacob stole Esau's blessing. And that it might be like a little bit of a disconnect with us as far as what that means. But that blessing was a word from God through Isaac, his father, right? That was pronounced on, at this point, on, on Jacob. It was a word of God to Jacob that what is being said is true and is a reality. And part of that blessing that God put upon Jacob says in Genesis 27, verse 29, let the peoples serve you and nations bow down to you, Jacob received. And that was true. Jacob is in fact the one who should be receiving the bowing as the one who received the birthright and the blessing. But what is he doing? He is giving up his rights in order to reconcile with Esau. Giving up what is rightfully his to receive the bowing, actually, of his brother. And he is bowing instead so that they might be reconciled. Jacob's encounter with the Lord has led him to put aside earthly status. To put aside that which he has a rightful claim to so that he might be restored. The one whose life has been changed by the Lord, the one who has been given a new heart, the one who has been given a new will, new affections, is one who is willing to put aside that which they may lay claim to in order that there might be peace among brothers. I would ask you, what have you laid aside willingly for the sake of unity among brothers? Or perhaps maybe what might be even more helpful of a question, what have you been unwilling to give up? What are you holding on to so tightly that it may be even a source of division between you and another? What is it that if the Lord might ask you to give up, you would refuse? I won't give that up. Is it your reputation, your wealth, your security, your health, your relationships? What would you be willing to sacrifice for the Lord in order to give 
God full glory. In fact, the, the, the bowing and vulnerability of Jacob, it isn't just simply pointing to him as this great example, but it points us further. It points us to Christ. I remember in Philippians chapter 2, it says that concerning Christ, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The life of Christ, even the life of Jacob, shows us that for the one who has been made new by the Lord, there is a new humility which Christ calls us to then live out. It's not just a humility, though, as we move on, but there's this actual like, new life of reconciliation which is taking place as well. And this the picture here is it's remarkable. It's beautiful. This is in verse four. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Hollywood has nothing on the story of Jacob and Esau. We can feel the pent up emotion. And these two brothers, so long in fear, so long in hatred. Esau's last spoken words to Jacob are in chapter 27, verse 41. Here's what it says. The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. His final words. Now, they're in warm embrace. The scene is even reminiscent of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. The father and the son running to be with one another in warm embrace. The reconciliation, though, which Jacob finds in the Lord, is what drives him to pursue this. Let me show you how. What was it that Jacob and Esau did while they were in Rebekah's womb? They wrestled. They struggled with one another. And just the previous chapter in Genesis 32, just the previous night, Jacob was wrestling again. He was wrestling with the Lord. It says, and he, and he prevailed and he was blessed. And now Jacob is facing the one whom he had struggled previously with, whom he had wrestled previously with in the womb. And he can pursue reconciliation with Esau because he has been blessed by the one that he wrestled with just the night before. In verse 10 here, chapter 33, Jacob tells Esau, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. And it connects us back to, again, to just the night before, in chapter 32, verse 30. It says, and Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob saw God, his life was spared. Jacob saw Esau, his life was spared. There is the absolute insistence of blessing which he has upon the Lord, upon the angel. And the insistence which he has upon Esau that he would accept his gift. 
There are uses of terms like gracious and favor all throughout both of these two texts, which connect us back to one another. The reconciliation which Jacob, Israel, has with the Lord drives him to pursue reconciliation with Esau. He is not seeking a tit-for-tat revenge as he did toward Laban, his father-in-law. He has been given a new will, desiring to be restored. What is motivating this, this this action? How does it do that? Early church father Clement of Alexandria, he said, For the sake of each of us, he, that is Christ, laid down his life, worth no less than the universe. And he demands of us, in return, our lives for the sake of each other. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. There cannot be a disparity between how we have reconciliation with the Lord and an unwillingness to pursue reconciliation with one another. Because Christ has forgiven you, pursue the forgiveness of others whom you have wronged. This is the fruit of the one who has been made new, the faith to humble oneself so that there might be reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 17, says that therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the point. If God, making you a new creation has given you the ministry, what does it say? The ministry of reconciliation. So you might implore others to be reconciled to God. How then foolish and hard-hearted would it be to not pursue reconciliation with your brother as one who has been given the ministry of reconciliation? All because of pride because of ego, because of principle, or because of fear. After Esau receives Jacob's gift, Esau invites Jacob to come to Seir with him. Jacob wanting to go at a slower pace because of his frail children, nursing flocks, and perhaps even because of his own ailing hip, he implores Esau to go on ahead of him. Jacob distances himself 
says there, from Esau at this point, certainly because he had previously, in chapter 28 actually, he promised to return to his father's house. He returns to the promised land, although not quite to his father's house, to Shechem, where he buys a piece of land. Back in Canaan, the land God had promised to Jacob and Isaac and to Abraham. And his new heart responds to the Lord then in the most appropriate way, in a new life of worship. It's the third thing that we see, Jacob's response of worship to what has just taken place. What does it say there in verse 20? Is that there he erected an altar, called it El Elohe Israel. Jacob has been brought back from exile. He was in exile from his family. He was in exile from his homeland. Although God was blessing him over and over again during his time in Padan Aram, where he was with Laban, his father-in-law slash uncle, uh, he was, even then, in a sense, in exile from God. It is not lost on Jacob that the gracious hand of the Lord has been upon him. The regenerate heart does not chalk up reconciliation up to good fortune or to happenstance. Jacob knows who he worships. He worships the sovereign God, El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. The one who proclaimed that the older would serve the younger. The one who made the dead womb of Sarah live. The one who called out Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees. The one who spoke forth the world into existence. El Elohe Israel. Jacob had promised and vowed to make Yahweh his God in 2821. Should he return to his father's house? And here he is in Canaan, erecting an altar to God, the God of Israel. Brothers and sisters, God has not simply turned your heart of stone into a heart of flesh so that you can live just a better life. He has not taken you out of the depths of exile and slavery to sin so that you could simply just enjoy the world around you a little bit better. He has given you, he has given your heart life, is what he has done, so that he would be glorified in you, and that you would fall down and worship God, the God of Israel, El Elohe Israel. Because the Lord creates in us new life, let us pursue godliness in our dealings with the Lord and with others through humility, through reconciliation, and through worship. As we close, I would ask you, have you had an encounter with a log truck? Is it visible? Can you see it? Praise be to the one who has indeed transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light.
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, you are indeed God, the God of Israel. And Lord, we do worship you. And God, I pray that by your might and by your power, you would apply these truths to our hearts, Lord, knowing that as you encounter us, Lord, we must change. God, I pray that you would indeed bring conviction where it's needed. And I pray you'll bring encouragement where it's needed, Lord, and that you would continue to produce the fruit uh, which you desire to accomplish both in our lives as individuals and as a church. Um, Lord, all for your glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name.